My name is Grant, if you're new here. Um, I'm one of the pastors or elders here at Harbor City. Um, and I actually had a, an amazing privilege this week of just spending some time in like northern Africa, in Tunisia. I was in the city of Tunis, which is a really beautiful place. Um, it was colonized by the French, so whatever your thoughts are about that. Um, the, the place has got a decidedly French feel, incredible French architecture in an African city filled with people who look very Middle Eastern. So I walked down a road uh, one of the days, which has literally been modeled after the Champs-Élysées in Paris. So you've got these beautiful hedges all the way along, people sitting uh, outside little cafes, smoking cigarettes, drinking Nespresso, which was the drink of choice. Not espresso, Nespresso. That is the way to do it, the pod life. Um, and what was just amazing is this city in Africa with a French feel filled with people who look Middle Eastern. It was a very, very unique place. Um, but being there, I was really just struck in this city of one and a half million people. Our city is three and a half million. A country of about 11 and a half million people. Our, our country is about 57 million. Less than 0.1% of the population know or follow Jesus, which is so crazy. In fact, just looking at the stats, there's less than 2,000 people in the country who would follow Jesus in the way that we know. They'd probably label themselves as Protestants or evangelical Christians. And the biggest Protestant church in the whole country is about the size of Harbor City. So if we were to transport our entire church there, we would be the mega church in the country of Tunisia, which is crazy to think when we think of ourselves as like a smaller kind of church. And I wanted to say that because I just want to affirm again and again that we are a church that wants to pray and give and go to serve places where Jesus isn't known, that we would see people come to know him and grow as his disciples and see churches planted and his kingdom come. And the reason I say that is because as many of you in this room know, we believe Jesus is the best thing. You know, we believe that he is the answer to the questions that we're asking. We believe whatever like the longing inside of your soul is that you could be looking in all sorts of places for that, that he is the one that meets those needs. You know, we believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, as it says in the Bible. And we believe whether you're looking for forgiveness or rest or hope or joy or love or approval or affirmation or whatever it is you might be looking for, the greatest and most important needs of our souls are fully and finally realized in him. And I say that, but at the same time, probably in this church and in churches all over the world, we can gather in a room like this and sing the songs that we sang today, which is so beautiful, about God's love and his grace and his power and his glory and how amazing he is, and then leave here and live just like anyone else. Just go into our weeks, go into our city, go into our jobs, and live like Jesus doesn't matter to us at all. And we've got to ask ourselves how that is possible, like... Why is that true? In a city so full of the knowledge of Jesus, so different to Tunis, how is it possible that we could live as if Jesus didn't exist? And of course, in the scriptures, it answers this question. Jesus has got an amazing parable that speaks into this. And really, he says that for believers or unbelievers, wherever you find yourself today on the spectrum of faith, there's really only three ways to live your life or three ways to look for the good life or what really, really matters. So we're going to look at that a little bit today. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 15, verse 1 to 2. And really, you're going to see in this chapter and in this parable that Jesus is calling us to ditch the other two ways to live and choose the third way, the best way, the way that he is at the center. A little spoiler alert for you. I'm giving away the end of the message. But this should be a passage that, regardless of your background, whether you're church or unchurched, whatever you believe about Jesus, you probably know this story from somewhere in the past. And just from my side, I, I didn't grow up in the church. I started being part of a church at the age of 12. 
um, and I've been in the church ever since. And there have been times where I've really passionately followed Jesus, where I've enjoyed him and loved him. There have been other times where I've felt really distracted from him, and other things have seemed much more interesting. I'd say my life has been more marked by sin than devotion to him. But I had a moment in 2007 where I'd been a Christian for about 11 years, where I heard a sermon preached by a guy named Tim Keller. It was on this passage. It was called The Prodigal Sons. I still remember the MP3 or whatever. And the way he spoke it changed my life. And I'm not trying to like blow this up or whatever. The way he spoke about Jesus and God and salvation and sin and meaning in life and what Christianity is all about was so beautiful and unique. I mean, I'd heard this parable spoken about so many times, but this had opened up all sorts of fresh understanding to what we are all about, why we're here today, what the faith is all about. And I'm hoping as I share today, I'll be able to communicate this as well as he did, and that actually God would use this to show you the beauty of Jesus this morning. So Luke 15, verse 1 and 2, says, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus starts this parable with two groups of people. So his audience, kind of like this today, is made up of two groups. On the one side, you've got the tax collectors and sinners. On the other side, you've got the religious leaders, the Pharisee and the scribes. So this group, the tax collectors and sinners, sinners is obviously a nice generic term, you know, kind of for anyone who's maybe up to no good, kind of the bad people, the people who do the naughty stuff, the immoral ones. These are the guys who your mom said to you when you went to school, don't hang out with them. I don't want you playing with that boy or girl because they're worried about the influence they would have on you. But the tax collectors, on the other hand, they were Jewish people who had actually rejected their family, their faith, their culture, their God, and had gone over to the other side and had started to serve the Roman Empire to get rich. So they had chosen wealth and the pleasures of this world over faith and family because they thought this was the answer. This is where the good life can be found. So they, they were corrupt. I think we in this country and many countries around the world know of government officials who are a little bit corrupt to get richer. This was these guys. They were ripping off their own people to fill their pockets and serve themselves. They were very selfish. And because of what they chose to do, they were rejected and outcasted in their day. But one of the things I want you to notice in those two verses is these guys, the sinners, the tax collectors, they're the ones who are interested in Jesus. They're the ones who are following him around and want to hear what he has to say. I think often we think that's not true, but Jesus and his message are actually really, really appealing to people who feel like actually they're looking for something or maybe find themselves in sin. The other side of the spectrum, the other part of the audience are the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders. Now, these are the people maybe your mom did want you to hang out with when you went to school. They were the goody two-shoes. They did all the right things. They were moral. They were religious. They were principled. They were ethical. But sadly, at the same time, they were very self-righteous. And if you did find yourself hanging out with them and being influenced by them, you'd probably go home and be quite judgmental around your family. Look down your nose at them, judge them a little bit, and become quite proud. And these guys are following Jesus around to hear what he's saying because they want to catch him out. They're looking for Jesus to mess up so they can go, aha, we got you, that's not right. And they're watching this audience that is attracted to Jesus and is listening to what he's got to say. They're saying, how can Jesus spend time with these people, hang out with these people, eat with these people? These are the sinners. These are the bad people in society. Look at us. We're awesome. They're terrible. Why would he want to be with them? Sadly, when you think of that being the heart posture of religious leaders, you think, surely that's not what God is like. Surely that's not what godliness looks like or righteousness at all. 
And from verse 3 to 10, Jesus tells these two parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Now, we're not going to be able to go into that today because we want to spend time on the third parable. But spoiler alert again, what happens is something gets lost, someone goes out to search for it, they find it, and then they celebrate. That's the gist of all three of these stories. But today we're going to focus in on the third parable, which in my Bible is titled the parable of the lost son, but really should be called the parable of the lost sons. There's two sons in the story, and both of them have drifted away from their father. So if you want to start in verse 11 with me, we'll read this together, or it will be up on the screens. Jesus also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. Now this is a big deal passage. Anyone in the room relate to the younger brother or the younger son? Didn't expect too many hands yet. Okay, maybe we got one or two. We'll see how things go as time goes on. But verse 12 in this passage is probably the most significant verse. I'll read it again for you. It says, um, The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. And this is radical. So he, the father, distributed the assets to them. So the gist of it is what is going on is it's a normal day, and this younger son decides he wants out. So he goes to his dad and says, hey, dad, I know you're a wealthy man, but I would like my inheritance now so I can enjoy it now. I want to use that for my own pleasures. Now, that's quite a radical thing, as you can understand. And probably even more than that is the fact that the father does it. (laughs) The father's a really wealthy man. And what he does is he takes a third of his estate, he sells it off, and he takes all those proceeds, all those earnings, and he gives it to his younger son so he can go and do with it what he wants which is pretty radical. The reason I say it's a third is because in that culture and in that day, the older son, the the older brother, would have received two-thirds of the inheritance. So that belonged to him. But the younger son gets one-third of the inheritance, and we see he quickly packs up his bags, and he goes off to spend it. Now, one of the dangers that we find with reading the Bible is we live in 2019, we live in Durban, we all have different upbringings and experiences, and we bring that to the reading of the text. So we don't see this passage through Middle Eastern lenses too easily. But this was a horrifying thing. Some of you maybe have been given an early inheritance by your families or by a friend or a relative or something like that. That was not the case in those days. Because really what that son has done is he had come to his dad and he said, Dad, I wish you were dead now. Which is a huge rejection. It's a huge humiliation for the father. He's saying, I wish you were dead so I could have your stuff. I want your stuff more than I want you which is 
horrific. This was scandalous. This was an honor and shame culture. So you can imagine what has happened is the son has dishonored his father. He has shamed his family. He's brought shame on himself. This would have been the talk of the town, huge scandal for that village. And he's gone off with the money to spend it on whatever he wants, which is quite a big deal. So the son goes off and it shows us that he goes to a different country, to a different land. And he's got this bucket list of things he's been wanting to do for a long time. And it's a long list. And now he's got the money and the time and the freedom to do whatever he wants. And he quite quickly starts to tick those things off the list. He's just working through them as fast as possible because he's got the time and the money. And he just enjoys himself and satisfies every pleasure and desire that he's got. He's going to the best restaurants and eating the best food. He's going to the best holiday destinations and just chilling out. He's going to the best events, the best parties. Whatever entertainment or satisfaction he wants is his. And just to be honest here, this is not like a PG-13 story. This is like 18 SNVL. He does the bad stuff too. Like the most exotic desires he's got, the most forbidden pleasures or carnal sexual acts, he goes out and he does all of that kind of stuff because this is what he has wanted to do. And now that he's free from his father and his family and his home, he can satisfy those desires. He'd held back in the past when he was at home, but now he does everything he had wanted to do. The son is on a journey of self-discovery. His father had told him what to do. He had told him right and wrong. He'd expected certain things from him. And now that he's away from home, now that he's away from any kind of authority and influence, he can reinvent himself, be a new person. There's no accountability. There's no one watching out over him. He can do what he wants, and he does. He experiments, he satisfies his pleasures, he does everything he wanted to do, sees everything he wanted to see, experiences everything he wanted to experience, and has us full of pleasures. He is on this journey of self-discovery. And in verse 13, we read this. He squandered his estate in foolish living. Now, some of you are sitting here and you might go, that doesn't sound like foolish living. That sounds amazing. Like, I wish I got that, like this big chunk of cash, freedom to just do whatever I wanted. But the reason that Jesus says there that this is foolish living is because it's so short-sighted. Like he goes out and he lives for the now. He lives for the moment. He does whatever he feels like with no thought of eternity, no thought of the future, and no thought of the consequences. And there are going to be consequences to his actions. I think sometimes we think God is a real spoil sport, telling us not to do some things that we think would be a lot of fun. And if we actually just could go out and do them, it would be amazing. But Jesus warns us about sin, not to hold us back from these things, but actually because he knows the danger and destruction that they can bring. He's trying to save us from the pain of the effects of sin. And I think probably a lot of us in the room know that already. You know, how many of us have found something really appealing, have really desired something, and we've done it even though we know it's sinful, even though we know it's going to dishonor God, even though we know we shouldn't do it. And as soon as we've done that thing instantly, There's a feeling of regret or guilt or emptiness or pain or shame that comes upon us. I'm sure some of us have felt that before. The reality is sin doesn't satisfy, or to be completely honest, sometimes sin does satisfy in the short term, but in the long term, sin does not satisfy, and in fact, it actually destroys us. And in verse 17, we see something really interesting. The NIV and the CSB, it says, the younger son came to his senses. And that's been one of the things that really jumped out to me as I've studied that this week. He came to his senses. 
Like he's paid the consequences for the things he's done. He's all of a sudden found himself in this pit. He's eating the slop that the pigs eat. He's devastated. He's in a land where the socioeconomic climate has changed. There's a famine that has struck everything. And he sits there, and it's like his eyes open, and he realizes for the first time, I had it so good back home. It was so good back home with my father. I've done everything that I could do. I've seen everything I could see. I've experienced everything I could experience. And I'm here now, and all I wish is that I could be with my father again. He's had this epiphany, a revelation. He's seen the true good life. It wasn't the way he thought it was. It's in a completely different space. And he decides to himself, I'm going to go home and see if my father would just let me be a servant for him. This is repentance. So Jesus is talking about repentance here, which isn't just apologizing. It's seeing the world as it really is, seeing it through God's eyes. Repentance is when we see the way things really are and we respond. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of heart and a change of life. This man has seen that life with the father is the true good life. And what he's been pursuing is not. And he wants to give all of that up now to go home and hope that he can be with his father again. I just want to kind of turn the story onto us for a second and ask you this morning, what would repentance look like for you? Is there anything for you in this room where you realize you've been like the younger son and you've believed the lie that these things might be better than life with the father? And today you realize, actually, okay, I'm coming to my senses I need to leave some of those things behind to come home to him. I think for myself, I grew up uh, from the age of 12 in a very Pentecostal church. I don't know if you've experienced that, if you know that, but there was some real strengths to the Pentecostal church, but also quite a bit of legalism. And I think probably the message I heard or the gospel I heard ended there in the story. It was kind of stop being bad, come to Jesus, and he will forgive you. That was kind of the extent of the gospel that I'd heard. And probably for any church, there's like a list of the bad things that you shouldn't do. In that church, or maybe when I was younger, the list we were given is don't have sex outside of marriage, don't take drugs, and don't get drunk. Now listen, we hold to that as a church. Just want to let you know that up front. But that was like the big three, you know, the unholy trinity. And you were meant to stay away from those things, and you'd kind of be fine. They didn't really look at some of the other sins. And maybe you come from another church that had a different unholy trinity or another top three. But there's so many things that we're called to follow in terms of honoring Jesus that we can make it about these few things and miss the bigger story of him. I actually think as you study what most commentators would say, they would say pride is the worst sin. Pride is not something we do out there. It might be something that people even don't detect in your life because it's internal. But pride is something that colors and shapes everything that we do. It shapes how we see the world. It shapes everything we do. And pride really does hold God at bay. It keeps him away from us. But there's so much more to the story. Part two is the story of the father. And we read from verse 20 to 24. So the younger son got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told the servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because, this is like the famous line, 
The son of man was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The son is on his way home, rehearsing his speech. And we know that because we see that in verse 18 and 19 and again in verse 21. He's been practicing this. He's probably praying. He's like, God, I don't know if my dad's going to forgive me. I don't know what he's going to say. He's going through it in his mind, what he's going to say, how he's going to say it. He finally gets there and he's ready to say it. And what happens? It's a very interesting passage. The younger son thinks to himself, I need to pay my dad back for what I've done. A lot of the commentators say his idea of going to work for his dad meant he was going to pay him every month in these lump sums so that even though he would never get to how much he had taken from his dad, how much he'd hurt him, rejected him, humiliated him, he'd be able to earn his way back into his dad's good books and become a son again. I think so often we approach God like that, thinking we can earn his forgiveness or his love or his grace. But as he comes within our range, the father sees him, and starts running. I want you to think about that, because the son's been gone for a while. Like, we don't know how long in the scriptures. Maybe it's a couple of months. Maybe it's a couple of years. I mean, it's long enough for him to blow through a lot of cash, experience a lot of stuff, go through the socioeconomic crash, become bankrupt, find a job, and then have this epiphany. Life with a father is the true good life. So let's call it two years. And the whole time, it seems like the father has been waiting by the window for his son. I want you to think about that. Like you've been rejected and humiliated by your son. They've taken your wealth. They've said, I wish you were dead. I'm out of here. And they've gone. And you've hoped, beyond any reason for hope, you've hoped the son is going to come home. You, you, you've hoped that. You, you've wanted that. You've desired that. You've, you've looked for him every single day, stood by the window close enough, maybe every couple of minutes, just peering back. And on this day, finally, he gets a glimpse of the sun on the horizon And he drops whatever he's doing, and he just starts running for the son. And he finally gets to him, and what does he do? He throws his arms around him, he hugs him, and he plants a big fat kiss on his forehead before the son is able to say an apology or before he's able to um, speak out the repentance, that speech that he's been practicing, you know? I want you to think about that for a second. Because God in this story is the Father. The Father represents what God is like towards us. And he just gets a dot on the horizon and he starts running to be with his son again. And before he says a word, that kiss is planted on his forehead. It's a kiss of grace. It's a kiss of forgiveness. It's a kiss of love. The reason the father can give that kiss is because he never stopped loving the son. He loved him when he was born. He loved him as he was growing up. He loved him as he started to work for him. He loved him when he asked for the inheritance up front. He loved him when the son turned his back and walked away. He loved him those two years that his son was doing the worst things that you can imagine. And he loved him when he saw that dot on the horizon that his son was coming home. The father kisses him on the forehead with love as an act of grace. That is how the father treats you and I. I want to say the son does not deserve that kiss. <laughs> he doesn't deserve it. He's, he's acted horrifically. But the father gives it to him freely. And again, if I can just flip this parable on us for a second... The challenge of this is how do we treat people who've hurt us, who've sinned against us, betrayed us, let us down, treated us in a way that we haven't deserved? Do we kiss them on the forehead straight away? Are we looking out, hoping that they would like apologize and that we could reconcile the relationship? Or, on the other hand, do we make people grovel, make them kiss our feet, make them work for our love, make them work for our forgiveness? 
Do we give people the cold shoulder? Do we passive aggressively say and do certain things to hurt them because they need to pay for what they've done? Because that isn't the way of Jesus. It's not what the Father models to us here. He is quick to forgive. His arms and love and acceptance and kiss are right there for the Son. And the Son's shame is washed away. Like, you've got to imagine the son is coming home. He's pretty dirty. He probably smells. Been with the pigs, not doing great stuff. His clothes are probably a little bit tattered. He's muddy. And the father embraces him. And when he sees him, he puts his own cloak on his son's shoulders. He's clothing him in righteousness. He's clothing him again as a member of the family. He's giving him his best clothes. And he puts his signet ring on the son's finger. Now, my dad's got a signet ring, which one day, if and when he passes away, I'd love to maybe put on myself. But those signet rings are used to put into wax and then to stamp onto the back of an envelope to say, this is Charles Richard Clark's ring. You know, this is from him. The father was saying, this son is my son, and I'm giving him back the authority that he lost. I'm restoring him as an ambassador or a representative of mine and accepting him into the family. I don't think the sandals mean too much. I think his shoes were probably just a little bit messy, but he put sandals on his feet too. I want you to think about this. This is a shame and honor culture. The way the father is responding to the son is not the way the culture said he should respond. He should reject him. He should shame him. He's an outcast. He's dead to him. And the father acts a very different way. And I want to highlight that shame and honor culture thing because I think our culture is starting to change a little bit more and move back towards this kind of shame and honor way of doing things. And I'm sure you have seen that in the media or at least on social media, you know, celebrity, a politician, a famous, well-known person, someone who's influential does something wrong and they are torn to shreds in the media. They are gossiped about, they are slandered, they are dishonored and kind of the new term for it is they are canceled. Now, because of what they have done, everything else is invalid. Now, listen, I'm not trying to play the devil's advocate here. That's not what I'm doing. Sin is sin, sin is terrible. Some things are very evil and destructive and hurtful. There should be consequences and punishment for the things that we do. Of course, of course, all of that's true. But I want to say of the church, the church should never be a self-righteous place where we point fingers and we condemn and where we judge others no matter what they have done. People should not be canceled in the church because of the things that they have done. When people... In the world that we live in, mess up like the younger brother has done. And when they come to their senses and they come home, the way the church should respond is like the father. We run out to them with open arms of acceptance. We kiss them on the forehead, that kiss of acceptance and grace. We clothe them and take the shame off of them. And we show them love and accept them as one of us. The church should never be a place of judgment or condemnation or hypocrisy. It should be a place of grace and love and truth. Middle Eastern patriarchs didn't run. I was thinking, I don't know if you've seen a movie or a TV show with like the big boss, you know, a mob boss or top politician or president or something like that. You don't see them running through the halls panic to do something. Their employees, their subordinates might run to them like that, but you don't see the top dogs doing that. And it was the same thing in the Middle Eastern culture. These patriarchs wouldn't run because running is what kids did. Running was humiliating. It was shameful. But when this father sees his son out there, he hikes up his robes. And I don't know what his legs look like, but he ran as fast as he could to get to his son, showing his emotion. 
like probably in tears, filled with love. He didn't care what anyone thought because this was his boy who was dead but now is alive, was lost, and is now found. And all he cared about was getting to him. I want to say to you today that God loves you. I actually saw on someone's Instagram a couple of months ago, it was your sister Romy's actually, she posted and said, religion is, oh no, look what I've done, what is my father going to say? Christianity is, oh no, look what I've done, I need to go to my dad. And that's what happens here. The loving father runs out to a son who has messed up. And if you have messed up in any way, don't run from the father because he is running towards you and pursuing you. I think some of us here are singing the songs, we're praying the prayers, we're doing the right thing, bless you brother, whatever, like playing the Christian vibe here on Sundays. But in our hearts, we've actually gone far away. We've drifted far from the father and far from his love. And this morning he is calling us back to his kiss. He's calling us to come home. The third and final part of the story has got to do with the older brother. And I want to highlight this because I think this is a part that often gets overlooked. Verse 25 to 30. uh, 30. Now his oldest son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not this brother of mine, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. I think many of us who've been in church for a while have, like I said, heard the younger brother gospel. You know, stop sinning, come to Jesus, he'll forgive your sins. Some of us have also heard the gospel of the Father. The Father loves you, he runs out to you, he wants to put the cloth on you and the ring on your finger. But I think so often we miss the gospel according to the older brother. And commentators would say, as much as Jesus is speaking to this crowd of two groups of people, Really, the whole of this parable is directed to the religious, the Pharisees, the scribes. He's speaking to the self-righteous, not to those who are giving themselves to self-discovery, because he's calling them to respond. So what happens in this passage is the older brother has finished a long, hard day working in the fields. And as he starts walking home, he hears beautiful music playing. He hears laughter. He thinks, this is quite great. He starts to see dancing. And then he smells the smell of meat in his nostrils. And he thinks, what is going on here? This is a huge party. This is unplanned. This is out of nowhere. What is my father doing? And he calls his servant and says, what's going on here? And the servant says, your brother has come home. Your father has forgiven him. He's put the robe on his shoulders, the ring on his finger, the sandals on his feet, and he slaughtered the fattened calf. You know, in a movie, when someone gets news that just shocks them, it's like a sucker punch to the stomach, and everything kind of goes blurry around them, and like the voices and the music just kind of gets muffled, and their eyes go big, and they're just in shock, and generally there's like a slight camera spin. That's what's happening to the older brother here. He's been sucker punched in the gut. He cannot believe this. His brother, his home, and his father has sacrificed or slaughtered the fattened calf. Not the fattened calf. That was the most expensive meat there was. 
You know, I know we've got some vegans, some vegetarians, some pescatarians in the room here. You don't eat much meat. But in those days, they basically ate vegetables, a little bit of meat from time to time, but the fattened calf would only be slaughtered maybe once or twice in a family's kind of lifespan. You know, this was a very rare occasion. This was a very big deal. This was very expensive. The whole town was welcome. They were invited in and they celebrated together. And when the older brother hears that, he says, I will not go. He's casting his vote of disapproval for what his father has done and for the fact that his brother has been forgiven. So he decides to make a very public statement saying, I'm going to go back to my home. They can celebrate. And the fact that he is not there is palpable. It's tangible. Everyone notices it. There's gossip going on. Where is he? Why has he not come? And when the father notices that his son won't join, he goes out to find him. And really what this older brother has done is he's done exactly what the younger brother did. He's publicly humiliated his father, he's rejected him, and he's gone on his own way. And what does the father do? Exactly what he does with the son. He went out to the younger brother in his humility, and he goes out to the older brother in his pride, asking them to come home. He goes to him and says, will you come to the party? Will you come back to me? I know you've left, I know you've gone away, would you come home? You know what's amazing about this is... Jesus, beyond all of the other things he's amazing at, is he's an amazing storyteller. And Jesus shares this, and then he leaves us with a cliffhanger because we don't know how the older brother responds. Will he, won't he? We're kind of left on the edge of our seat, like what's he going to do? And Jesus did this very intentionally for his audience because he wanted the religious scribes, Pharisees, to be offended by this. They were so used to pointing their finger at other people and judging and condemning and looking down their noses at them. The story Jesus has told points a finger at them. He's pointing the finger of the story in their direction and saying, your sin might not be outward like the younger brothers, but it's an inward sin of pride and arrogance and independence and self-righteousness. You think because of your good works, not your bad deeds, your good deeds, that you don't need me and that you don't need anyone else. You think you're good enough on your own. How proud and self-righteous of you. The story provokes them and convicts them of what they've done. And really what's amazing about this story is as different as those two groups of people are and the lives they've lived and the stories they've told, the younger brother has used the father to get what he wanted. He wanted to get money so he could go out and experience and have pleasures and satisfy himself and live a life of self-indulgence and self-discovery. The older brother has used the father because he thinks if I live a good life, if I work hard, if I slave away for the father, then he will owe me all of the stuff that I want. And so often Christians do this with religion. What we do is we think if I'm a good enough Christian, if I attend enough Christian events, if I pray enough, if I don't do the bad sins, that list of three or whatever it is, then God will have to give me eternal life or answer my prayers or make sure I never get sick or none of my family members get affected or I don't struggle or suffer in life. We try to use God rather than enjoying God for ourselves. We choose this way or that way as the way for the good life. But in verse 31 and 32, the father responds. He says, son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The older brother still hasn't realized what the younger brother realized in that pigsty. 
he still hasn't realized that the third way is the best way. Not the way of self-discovery or the way of self-righteousness, but the way of doing life with the Father. That is the good life. That's what we're all really looking for. And here in verse 31, the Father says to him, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. He's saying to him, the whole time I have been with you, the thing you've been looking for has been here, but you've been carrying on your life, doing your own thing, working hard to try and earn something from me, when what you really desired was freely yours all along. You've missed that I was here for you all along. I want to ask you today, which way of life are you choosing? Self-righteousness, self-discovery, or life with the Father? What does it look like for you to leave here choosing to find satisfaction and find your life with Him? I end with this. In the first two parables, as I said, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, there's something that gets lost. There's someone that goes out to find it. It gets found, and then they celebrate. So Jesus, again, the master storyteller, has told the story, but everyone who's listening is going, this third story is different from the other two, because in the third story, no one has gone out to search for the son. Why did no one go to find him when he left? Jesus is he's so clever in the way he tells these stories because he's highlighting again how the older brother has failed. The older brother was the one who should have gone to look for the son. He knew how devastated his father was that the son had left. He should have gone and searched everywhere to find him. And when he found him, brought him home to be reconciled to the father. But he wasn't willing to pay the price. Jesus is the better brother who's willing to pay the price for you and I to come home. Luke 19 verse 10, he says of himself, the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. It's the reason that Jesus came. He left heaven for earth. He went out to find you and to find me so that we could know the father. Not only that, but when he found us, what he does is he offers us at least to take the shame and guilt that we might feel from us and to clothe us and bring us into the family. And he washes us clean of our sins. He forgives us of our shame. And he gives us a new life and identity in the family. Jesus, out of his great love for us, pays the price, going to the cross, dying for our sin, and then adopting us into his family as brothers and sisters. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but Jesus was an only child. The whole inheritance was his. And when he welcomes us into the family, he decides, I will split the inheritance up between all of God's children. The older brother is so cross when he smells that smell of meat because he thinks, my father has killed the fattened calf for him. He's already had his part of the father's inheritance. Everything the father does for him is eating into what is mine. He cares more about himself than about his brother's redemption. But Jesus is the better brother who will pay whatever it takes to bring you back into the family. So this morning, I want to say to the younger brothers in the room, come to your senses, (laughs) just like this young man did. Come to your senses and see the truth that nothing is better than the father. Sin and self-discovery and pleasure will not satisfy you. God alone can. And to the older brothers, who really Jesus is driving this whole passage at, would you, out of your pride, humble yourself and come back to the Father? Stop thinking you can do it on your own. Stop thinking you're good enough or moral enough or strong enough. Leave independence and self-righteousness behind and come to the Father. 
the reality is for every single one of us, we're probably both, you know? Probably all of us go, okay, I associate more with this one or this one. But in our hearts, all of us have both brothers inside of us. And even today, I think there's an opportunity for us to respond to the Father who has come out to us, to receive that kiss on our forehead, to receive his robe on our shoulders and that ring on our finger, and just to enjoy the fattened calf of Jesus sacrificed for us. Can we pray together? Father, I thank you for the way that you pursue us and love us. Thank you for each one of us, whatever our story is, whatever we did last night or this morning, whatever we've done this year, good or bad. If we're not trusting in you, if we're looking to other things to save us, to satisfy us, to give us the good life, even now there's an opportunity to respond to the Father. If this morning you're like the younger brother and have been believing that sin will satisfy you, this morning would you leave that behind and respond to his kiss? If you've been trying in your own strength, been trying to be good enough, keeping God at arm's bay in your pride because you think that you've got what it takes, if you're pointing fingers at others, if you're being self-righteous and judgmental, condemning other people, would you leave that behind, repent of that today, and come home to the Father? Lord, I just pray for each one of us that you would help us to hand over our whole selves to you, to surrender to you, and to know the good life of being in the Father's love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.